This is Risky Women Radio, a show that connects, celebrates and champions women in risk, regulation and compliance. We're here to share the insights on the biggest issues in our industry and hear inspiring journeys from our global members. Sign up to our newsletter at riskywomen.org. I'm Kimberly Cole, your Chief Risky Woman. Welcome to Risky Women Radio. Today's Risky Woman is Catherine Fox. I am absolutely thrilled to have Catherine join us today as our first in our Risk Radar series. In the Risk Radar series, we're taking a 360-degree view of risks facing leaders, everyone from boards to management teams and individuals. And today we're looking at the diversity risk and the need to invest in women. Catherine Fox AM is a leading commentator on women and the workforce. She's an award-winning journalist, author, presenter, and has spoken to audiences around Australia. During her long career with the Financial Review, she edited several sections of the newspaper and wrote the Corporate Woman column. She's published five books, including Stop Fixing Women, which, along with her journalism, was awarded the 2017 Walkley Award for Women's Leadership in Media. Her most recent book, Womankind, which was co-authored with Kirsten Ferguson, was launched in 2018 and examines how female solidarity and support is rebooting the global women's movement. And Risky Women was thrilled to be mentioned as part of that book as well. So Catherine has helped establish the annual Financial Review 100 Women of Influence Awards in 2012, and she was named a Woman of Influence in 2018. She was a member of the Australian Defence Force Gender Equality Advisory Board and sits on Australians Investing in Women Board. She's also the co-founder of the Sydney Women's Giving Circle. So welcome, Catherine. Oh, thank you, Kimberly. How lovely to be chatting with you. Absolutely. So I've obviously given an amazing sort of snapshot of your career and the awards that you've won, but can you sort of take us on your career journey and how you've got to where you are? Well, yes, my career journey, I suppose, and certainly around gender equity probably traces back to when I moved into journalism. So took me a few years to get into the media. So I worked for a while in financial services. I worked for an investment bank in London and and so on, always in a communications role. I'm not a technical person at all, but then joined the financial review and got my eye on that corporate woman column really early on. It had been in the paper for some years and written by a number of different people. And I'm not overly strategic about things normally, but I remember thinking, oh, I'd like to write that. And the woman who was writing it when I joined the paper, sure enough, announced she was leaving. I hadn't been there that long, actually, and I went straight into the editor and said, would you be prepared to let me have a go at writing that weekly column? It was quite a big sort of leap of faith for him. And he said yes. And I started writing it. It became a real labour of love. I did it on top of a number of other jobs that I had at the paper. And it became a platform that allowed me to interview incredible women and men who were involved in the whole area, as well as business leaders and academics and so on. And it developed quite a following. And so over the years, and I wrote it on and off, I didn't write it consistently because I went off and had children and then came back. But I found that I was being asked quite a lot to speak 
at events, conferences and so on. So I started to find that I was building a bit of a parallel career, if you like, that was very much around gender equity. And that's when I started to write books. And then one thing led to another. And when I eventually took a redundancy from the Financial Review, nearly 10 years ago, in fact, I was able to then sort of dedicate myself to my other career, if you like. So still doing a lot of work, consulting work, research, writing and board work in that area, if you like, of gender equity. Excellent. So I'd love to dig into that a bit more. And if you weren't doing what you are doing now, what would have been your dream career? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I was so committed from such an early age to be a writer. So I ended up doing really what I had always wanted to do. But funnily enough, also when I was quite young, for some reason I got it in my head I wanted to be an architect. I would have been appalling. I mean, I wouldn't have even got through the first year of architecture, but I did have that in the back of my mind for some reason for a long time. And then obviously reality slapped me into shape a bit. So um, Sounds like you got your dream career then. You wanted to be a writer. I actually did. I did. That's fantastic. And what would you say are some of the biggest risks that you've taken in your career? I think the biggest risk, in fact, and I will say this advisedly, is having kids. I actually think that we often sort of gloss over this and, oh, women, you know, they go off and have babies. It is one of the biggest, most momentous occasions in your life. It upends everything, particularly for women. I am fully aware that men are also parents, but as we know, the way that we structure work, paid and unpaid, still contingent on women doing the vast majority of unpaid work and making the adjustments to paid work to accommodate that and to support often their other half. So I think that's sort of what will happen to my career, my job, my earning capacity, for heaven's sakes, when I had, and I had three children in two and a half years. I want to jump in and explain. I do understand what contraception is. However, um, we ended up having a two-year-old and then having twins, naturally conceived twins. So this was not planned. It was hugely disruptive and very difficult. And just very seriously, for a lot of women in lower paid, lower skilled areas, that capacity to bring up a family and to try and bring money in and so on is just enormously compromising. And as we know, it means that for a lot of women who spend their life caring, they end up in poverty after retirement or if they get to retirement. So these are not small issues. And actually, it is a big risk, a really big risk, even for someone as privileged as me. Yes, absolutely. And so I guess similar theme, but what do you think are some of the sort of important lessons that you've learnt along the way? You mean generally rather than just bringing up kids? Yes, because the one thing I would say about bringing up kids is I wasn't very good at it. (laughs) My husband and I always say that uh, the girls kind of grew up despite us. So, no, we absolutely adore them. But um, I think the lessons along the way, and I do like to phrase it as lessons because I don't think I've got any answers that I can hand out to other people. I can tell you what's happened to me and some revelations I've had, some penny drops. I think asking for help at the right time, especially when you are struggling with that blending of personal and unpaid work and paid work and so on is absolutely essential. Building up your allies. I've always had wonderful female friends and family around me, which has been, well, just irreplaceable and just gets you through. But I guess one of the big lessons I learned, and it's reflected in my books, specifically in Stop Fixing Women, is at a certain point, I realised that I would take quite personally failure. Well, 
as one does. But I'd have a setback or, and I'd really beat myself up and think, well, you made a really stupid decision there. You shouldn't have done that. And it took me a long time to understand that sometimes those decisions were contingent on the norms around me. I was being assessed in a different way. I wasn't getting the same opportunities as some of my male peers. And I'm not using that as a crutch because I absolutely have made mistakes, like every human being makes mistakes. But I did understand that the cards were stacked against me because of my gender. And at a certain point when I understood that, I actually drew some strength from it. It actually lifted a weight from my shoulders and made me think, well, goodness, what could I do at that point? I didn't really have choice. I didn't have lots of viable options. I had a lot of judgment around me as a mother and a carer and so on. So I think that for me, that moment was a bit of a breakthrough. And I really have tried to impart that to a lot of women because I think they get encouraged to blame themselves a lot personally for decisions and changes that they make in their life that they have very little choice about. Interesting. So what I wanted to talk about today was really this concept of risk radar with this diversity lens on it. So if we're thinking about creating that risk radar or that dashboard of laying out where we are on gender diversity, what areas would you sort of list out are those key ones that need to be watched and are still issues for us? Well, pay and progression the two Ps, absolutely essential. And of course, the other one, which I've been writing about and researching for years, is having women around the decision-making table, in fact. We're not doing brilliantly on that. And I can speak, obviously, about Australia, but I also know internationally that the statistics are poor. Australia's actually dropped down in terms of global standards. The Global Gender Gap Index, which we look at every year, we've dropped significantly on that, especially around economic participation, which is very worrying. Political representation as well, although that is improving a little since our recent, well, the federal election earlier in 2022. But I think that the metrics around where are women? Are they well represented throughout an organisation? Are they being paid fairly? And are they being retained and given a chance to build good careers, solid working lives, I think are the ones that we have to look at. And of course, if you're a consumer facing organisation, you must be aware of your market. Who are the people that you are marketing to, the goods and services that you produce? there's a very good chance that in many, many sectors, a considerable number of them will be women, if not the majority. So if you're not aware of that, that is a massive risk, massive. And of course, as the world becomes more complex, if you don't have a full complement of skills in your organisation, and as Julia Gillard, our former Prime Minister, always said, you know, talent is evenly spread through the population. If you have an over-representation of one gender and not the other, you're missing out on crucial skills. Yeah, I was actually thinking Julia Gillard's book, Women and Leadership, has some really good statistics in it there as well. And obviously, um, based in Hong Kong, you know, the FTSE 100 has had a lot of focus, as is the ASX of getting, you know, more women on boards. And in Hong Kong, of the top 50 companies listed, only one has a female CEO. And then the other statistics that you know, was part of the reason that I put together Risky Women Radio was to bring more female voices on key topics. And still, um, the statistics are like only 24% of persons heard, read about or seen in the news media are women. And even worse, only 4% of news stories clearly challenge 
gender stereotypes. Now, I don't have the kind of background of exactly where those statistics come from, but feels like it's still absolutely a huge issue. In one of your first books, The Seven Myths of Women and Work, my kind of focus, I remember when I read that, was on the meritocracy myth. It was a real revelation when I read that. Have steps been taken, do you think, to change that myth? I think some have been. And to be fair, I think people are a bit wary of the actual word merit now because it's come onto the radar. As you know, Kimberly, in Australia, there's a group of not only listed companies, but large organisation CEOs who are in something called the Champions of Change Coalition. So they come together to actually try and get more women into leadership. And they actually have put out research around the merit, the whole idea of merit and what it actually means. And it's such a subjective term, which is the problem I've always had with it. And it's also become an excuse, basically, to say that we didn't actually properly spread the net and look at a full range of candidates. We just felt that this person had merit. So I think that we've come some way towards it. But in a number of recent instances about appointments in our New South Wales government, the word merit has come up again and I've been appalled. There's a definition of merit in the book, by the way, Kimberly, which we may as well throw in because it always gets a laugh. But it's actually, there's a serious point to it. And it's not one I came up with. A male director actually told me, he said, merit actually stands for mates elevated regardless of intellect or talent. That's what the word merit stands for. And I think actually I've read that definition out a few times to very mixed audiences, audiences of police actually, which was predominantly men. And they all nodded their head because everyone's seen a bit of a nepotistic appointment or he's my mate, he, he gets the job. So merit, I think, is still a very flawed concept and I would like to see us tighten up on the way that we assess everybody in organisations instead of just saying, oh, no, we think this, to be actually much more specific because one of the things we actually do know about the way women are assessed when they're actually going for a promotion or a job is that they're marked down, and some very recent research looked at this, marked down in terms of potential, how much potential they have. There's a really big area of bias around that. So they come in with fantastic performance credentials, but they're marked down as not having potential. What's that about? That is about bias. So I think we have to be way more specific about how we're making a decision in those important kinds of times where someone's up for a promotion or a new job. Yeah, that's very interesting. And you recently wrote an article called Lean Out, Lessons from the Feminist Backlash, and you talked about some of the areas where potentially we've been sort of a bit misguided. Can you share a bit more on that? Yes, and I did write that for a specific reason, which I could come back to in a moment, a bit of a discussion going on in, in Australia, certainly, but I think elsewhere as well. But the reason I mentioned it is this is not a personal attack on Cheryl Sandberg. I mean, she actually bothered to write a book at that time, and it did bring up for discussion a lot of really important issues. So, good honour. What disturbed me when it came out and continued to, it was very much about the individual. So, it was tweaking individual behaviour. I certainly say, yes, it's important for women if they are around the table to make their point of view known. But some people like me had been trying to do that for a long time. And the problem actually isn't so much women, it's the people around them who are not listening to them. We know statistically speaking, women tend to get interrupted in meetings much more. They have their ideas appropriated. It's about the systemic sexism that they're facing, in fact. And no amount of attempting to lean in 
and let's face it, Cheryl was writing for a fairly privileged and senior group, I think, as well. But no amount of that is going to change the attitudes and assumptions of embedded sexist behaviour in organisations. So I think that was the problem. The other one was if you tweak behaviour, you may get a short-term result. You may get someone who said, look, I lent in and I got that new... And that's great. No one's begrudging that, but it is short term and it will not apply to others. It may just apply to them in very particular circumstances. So it doesn't change the dynamics. And that's what we have to change. We have to change the rules and the way that we do things, because otherwise that will always be specific to those people. It also says that the burden rests on a woman's shoulders to change. And that is not the case. It is our organisations and our systems that must change. Otherwise, we will never see anything approaching parity. So I think it's that that real focus on the individual and the focus on women who, in fact, are, I know we don't like to use the word victims, but they're the ones who are suffering from marginalisation, whereas, in fact, it's the men around them and particularly men in power who need to actually start to change those things. And you said you wrote the article for a specific reason. There's been quite a big debate here and a very welcome one about the need to focus the discussion around gender and so on, on improving the care economy. Now, of course, this has come into absolute sharp relief because of the pandemic. And like every country, actually, probably around the world, enormous pressure on health, aged care, teaching, all of these pressures are being faced by many, many countries. And of course, they are female dominated. So the workforce is in all of those areas. So a very welcome change. But as part of that, there's been a bit of, well, why have we concentrated so much on women climbing the ladder or corporate feminism and so on? As I say, I have some sympathy with that. There are elements of it that I think were short-sighted and have not done us any favours. But we still must, we must continue to try and get more women into decision-making. And we can't just say, oh, it's not relevant for a woman in a white-collar occupation. Fairness isn't relative. Fairness should be everywhere. And we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can absolutely advocate for people working in the care economy to be better paid and better treated, but we can also continue to advocate for more women in leadership and on boards because we also know that women in leadership make an absolute difference to the number of women promoted, narrowing the gender pay gap and changing the agenda. So absolutely essential. Yeah, absolutely. And what initiatives have you seen that have been more successful? I think down-to-earth stuff where you actually investigate the way that you recruit. How are you advertising? Are you making sure that you have long lists and indeed short lists that are diverse? How do you go about making that decision? So harking back to our discussion on merit, actually having checklists and making sure they're looked at and properly adhered to. And the other ones that I would suggest are targets, and I know the word quota sends the business community into a bit of a frenzy, but having goals in place and reporting on them and doing that consistently. And goals in place, by the way, again, not just for the very top, but making sure that women are well represented and properly paid. Oh, and on pay, of course, the gender pay gap audit movement, which I think more and more organisations have been taking up, which is a good thing to see. So it's something that's tangible and that can be measured and reported on. And Stop Fixing Women was another one of your fabulous books. Have we stopped trying to fix women? And I guess where has been success? What else do we need to do there? I don't think we have stopped fixing women, but I've been delighted to see the reception of that book because a lot of women have approached me and said, this has been a penny drop for me. 
this made me realise that my entire life people have been trying to fix me. I'm not quite right. So they've actually, it's resonated in the right places and a couple of our large employers actually used it as a bit of a manual to change their approach to gender equity, which I was very happy to hear, of course, uh, music to my ears. But I think there is still a bit of a default and the reason is it's so much easier. It's low-hanging fruit. Oh, look, the problem here, it's not us, couldn't be us, but it's you women. If you don't need to negotiate a bit more, if you just lean in, if you do. So tweaking us has always seemed like, you know, because let's face it, the people who are at the top, they have a vested interest in defending the fact that they got there on merit, that they're just damn good. So there must be something wrong with us women if we're not coming through in the numbers, you know. So I think that we're still trying to fix women, yes, indeed. And I think that whenever I can, I'm telling people this is a pointless exercise. Not only that, you're embedding the very stereotypes that we're trying to dismantle. You're telling women all the time they're not naturally good at leadership, they're not good at decision-making, they're not good at negotiating, they're not risk-takers. There is no evidence that any of that is the case. And I've just been at a conference, as we speak, in August, for two days that Commonwealth Bank put on. A lot of younger women who are running businesses and doing extraordinary things, those women have all taken massive risks. They're incredible negotiators. I just can't tell you how uplifting it was to hear and see from them. So um, it's time to really sort of eradicate. It's been a convenience and it's done nothing to change the dynamics around sexism and bias in our organisation. So I'm still on the soapbox, Kimberly. Excellent. Well, we're glad to have you there. And when you're currently speaking to boards and other leaders of big businesses, What are those conversations? You know, what areas do they still really need to focus on? I think that um, it's interesting, the board area. I think that uh, there's been quite a focus in this country, certainly in the listed company board space. There's been, luckily, finally, a bit of an uptick in the number of women appointed, not resoundingly, but around 33% now of listed company top listed company boards. And I should make that point, it's ASX 200. So beyond that, the percentage drop. However, I think that this idea that ignoring this whole area, or at least at the very least sort of glossing over it and doing a bit of compliance work, I think that is now seen as being very disturbing. And we've had a number of large companies here who've had notably AMP, a financial services company that went through quite a big scandal. And a lot of women in that organisation were just furious about the way that the senior executive there had been treated and despite actually a complaint of sexual harassment being made against him. So I think that there is this nail your colours to the mask. Don't just tell us you're an equal opportunity employer, that you have zero tolerance for sexual harassment. We want to actually see the evidence of that. And I do think that boards are seeing and hearing that well and truly. And of course, as you know, it's part of a much bigger ESG debate. So that has much, much more resonance now. A couple of the big resources companies in Australia have been tackling some very poor statistics on sexual harassment and sexual violence at their remote locations. This stuff is appalling and it affects your share price. This is not a minor matter. So we're seeing examples of that all the time. And for those reasons, I think boards are becoming more and more alert to the real risk this represents by not being properly addressed reported on, gathering the right data and so on. So I think there's more literacy at board level. What I would like to see is more application of those ideas and making sure that they're being quite rigorous about it. And who's doing it well? 
and you know what impact have you seen there i mean obviously you mentioned share price etc there are there are some interesting companies that are doing some good stuff but not in one sector and i think that again i think this is the case in other countries as well so i can't point to one sector that seems to be outperforming but there are a few um mervac the construction company has done some remarkable stuff does have a woman ceo and uh, a couple of well more than a couple of uh, very talented women on its board and i think it's put a lot of things into practice a lot of the measures i've been speaking about energy australia another sort of different company they um eradicated the gender pay gap rigorous research looked at it they look at it every year they didn't do it once and then think it was fixed and forget and they got rid of that gender pay gap there are organizations that are doing it lion nathan or lion as it's called now the drinks company have done the same thing a very male dominated business they've eradicated the gender pay gap so i'm seeing interesting examples of that and there as i say in a wide range of sectors it's not one area and it's not always what you'd expect in fact it's not necessarily an area like health which you know will often have obviously more women employees and more women in senior ranks but not to say some of them aren't doing some good work as well but i have been fascinated to see some of these organizations quite proudly saying we've actually addressed that and we've changed it so the big weak spot if you look at the data though remains not so much boards room for improvement at board level for sure it's executive leadership ranks so it's still very low it's around 24 25% women and as you know that's the pipeline into the c suite and so on and that's still quite poor so much more work needed there and so if you have a crystal ball and you're thinking about the future what do you think is going to be the biggest impact that we can make or what is that thing that we should be really focused on as a mandate to change gender equity i can't ever say one thing and i i know because i get asked that all the time and i think that's the problem i think we do get asked that the reason progress has been so slow there's obviously many reasons but one of them is a whole lot of things have to happen it can't be one but i mentioned right at the beginning having more women who are making decisions whether it's as teams whether it's at the very senior rank in the community in our governments in our society we must have women there who are making those decisions gathering that information and reflecting their own experience in the decisions they're making it's absolutely essential i just can't emphasize that enough so that is when you will get action because they will understand that they have to do a whole lot of things it's not one and it's not one versus another it's not a zero sum game but a whole lot of stuff has to be done and can be done we're good at multitasking uh, but we do need more women to be consulted and listened to it's a simple thing but it's still very tough i think certainly in this country and anything recently that you've learned that's just totally blown you away i'm sometimes surprised by the anecdotes i hear still from women in a hot again an array of different workplaces and how they've been treated i know i shouldn't be in a way but i'm just appalled by how some women and actually very well educated and sometimes quite senior women have been bullied and harassed and spoken to it's quite awful and it's just that feeling hasn't that changed and you know what it still hasn't and often enough if it's a more senior woman or a woman in a professional role it's done behind a closed door and uh, there's still an awful lot of harassment that's going on 
And then you hear, you know, that galling remark from a senior man saying, oh, women, you know, why don't they stay? They just leave. And you think, you know what? You have a few incidents like that and it's it's very hard to stay in organisations. So I think that that, while it doesn't totally surprise me, I'm still sometimes just, uh, again, this conference, which was an uplifting one that I've been at, I heard a few anecdotes that made my hair curl. So we've, we've still got a long way to go. There's also a lot of backlash. So, again, it's not formal, clearly, but under the surface, a huge amount of resentment and anger. So another good section for you to get some of these ideas out, but my rants and revelations, we do this with all of our risky women. So on the revelation, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I think I'm going to go back to what made me write Stop Fixing Women, and I'm not sure that someone passed it on to me, but just in conversations I'd had over such a long time, I thought we are continuing to try and fix us rather than looking at the environment we're in. Simple thing, but just made such a difference to me. Changed the whole way that I looked at uh, what I was doing and a lot of my work. So I think it was probably people like the wonderful Liz Broderick, who was now Sex Discrimination Commissioner and continues to work in the area people like Ann Summers, you know, and so on, just have, we've discussed over the, and I just thought, yeah, that's the thing that made a big, big difference to my outlook. And I say, took a weight off my shoulders and that also motivated me. I suggest everyone reads it. And now a good one, the rant. What's your rant? If you had the magic wand, you know, you were in power over everything for the day, what would you change? I've been asked this once or twice before. In fact, I was asked to give a speech once, you know, what would you do? And I said, here's what I'd do. Every single man in power in the entire world I would replace with a woman. That's what I'd do. Wow. (laughs) If it's only lasting for a day, that's fine. You get a replacement for the Pope. I'm kind of joking, but I'm kind of not. Like, I think men have had a long run and it hasn't been going brilliantly. I think it's time. Let's shift them out. There's plenty of women around the world. Just replace them all with a woman. It's just a very interesting visual just seeing this transformation. (laughs) It absolutely is, but may as well give it a go. Absolutely. (laughs) Why not? All right. And to wrap up, we're going to do our rapid fire round. So... In one word, okay, what is the biggest risk of not focusing on gender equity? Revolution. Ooh, I like it with my R's too. Most important focus for the future. That is a tough one. You know, I looked at that and I thought most important. So I just have to give one word on yeah. that or I can be a bit. Oh, you can. Oh, look, I'm flexible. but mm. <laughs> Of course, I'm trying to think of one word to say who has authority. It's really important. Who has the wherewithal and the authority to make decisions? So I can't wrap that into one word, but that's where I think we have to be looking. And are you optimistic, pessimistic or neutral in your outlook for the year ahead? I'm always optimistic, which will sound counterintuitive and as though I'm contradicting everything I've said, but I'm not because what I've been explaining about the barriers, I think there's so many fabulous women around. That's why I'm an optimist and I think they're becoming more and more energised. Excellent. And what word represents success for you? Oh, success. I think satisfaction. Not pride, not but satisfaction. I think there's something really kind of grounding in that word. And what do you think the top skill is going to be needed for the future? I think it would be 
something to do with the capacity to see talent everywhere, take the blinkers off, actually. And I think that we've got a long way to go, not just on sexism, but racism and other forms of homophobia and so on. I really hoped we'd be further along that line, but I don't think we are. Taking the blinkers off and seeing the world, seeing people for who they are, not the colour of their skin or any other factor. Yeah. And now we just want to end with some Risky Women recommendations. So to end, can you tell us what's a books that you've read or something that you're watching that you think everyone would benefit from watching or reading? Absolutely. So the book that I'd like to recommend I read a few months back and then interviewed, well, I actually, no, I didn't interview directly, but heard the author speak at King's College in London. And the book's The Authority Gap, Marianne Seagart who's an English journalist, and uh, she was in conversation with Julia Gillard at the Institute in King's College. And I just think it's an excellent book. And even for someone who considers themselves fairly well-versed in the area, I found it eye-opening. So she's gathered some extraordinary evidence there. And while it's a um, a bit shocking, I think it's also uplifting at the end because it just pulls the scales from your eyes. And I think every man I know should read it. It's fabulous. It's a fabulous book. I loved it. Um, What am I watching? Well, you know, interestingly, I'm very late to the party and fully aware of it. I hadn't watched Gorgon. And so many of my friends said, you must watch Gorgon. It's just an extraordinary, extraordinary series. So many themes that you're interested in. And they're absolutely right. So I'm up to series three. And of course, series four, which didn't come out all that long ago, I will then watch. So I'm absolutely loving it. It's fantastic. Excellent. And finally, what's your favourite podcast? The Rest is History is one of my favourite podcasts, which is an English podcast series. And my husband's been listening to it and my daughter's been listening to it and I've started to dip into it. Absolutely fascinating. It just goes all over the place and I love that. And I do occasionally, I suppose it's not really a podcast, but the BBC Women's Hour I will listen to as a podcast, which I also thoroughly enjoy. So Me too. Yeah, it's great. Love it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Catherine. It has been absolutely wonderful to have more of your insights on diversity, gender equity, and what we need to do. So thank you for joining us on Rescue Women Radio. Well, thank you very much for having me. And I do hope we can be in the same room at some point in the near future. I do too. (laughs) Thanks, Kimberly. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Risky Women Radio. Be part of the ongoing conversation and learn more about our events and other programs at riskywomen.org.